Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Sarah Broadhurst, archivist for the Zoological Society London. Hi Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about how you came to be at the ZSL? Hi, yeah, I'm Sarah. Uh, as Faith said, I'm the archivist at the Zoological Society of London, um, which is a conservation charity uh, founded in 1826. Um, and we're probably best known for the two um, zoos that we run, um, which are London Zoo uh, and our sister site, which is Whipsnade Zoo, and um, that's up in Bedfordshire. Um, I came to be here in the way that many people do in um, their careers in this sector, I think, which is a very meandering way. Um, I kind of had a background in sort of history of science stuff um, and worked in a number of um, collections that were kind of that way inclined. Um, and I've been here since 2016. So what does your role entail at the moment? Um, at the moment, Pandemic wise or just generally? <laughs> generally, although obviously pandemic has kind of cast a long shadow, hasn't it? Um, generally, I'm responsible um, for uh, maintaining um, the archive collection of the society, obviously. Um, uh, adding new things to it um, and doing the kind of collections management side of things. And then obviously I'm also responsible for um, any inquiry work um, that is related to the archive um, and those questions can come from um, internal staff as, as much as um, external um, members of the public, researchers, that kind of thing. Um, so it's probably about half and half on those things, um, I would say. There's a library that the Society has. Is Are you part of that or is the archive a bit separate from that? Yeah, so I'm part of that. There's three of us um that work uh within the library um so two librarians and me looking after the archive um and we have uh not just kind of modern books and journals but um historical collections rare books artworks photographs um we say that we're the largest we think we're the largest zoological library in europe um but I suppose you never <laughs> want to say you definitely are, but there might be somebody say that's Say it with bigger. confidence, no one will question you. Say it, say it with confidence, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're kind of there to um, assist everybody from, um, you know, scientists working on uh, the, you know, conservation science and um, zoological matters kind of right now. Um, and then people who are interested in, in the more historical kind of side of things as well we sort of do it all but yeah we're just a, we're just a little team and the library is in um the main office building of the society which is uh outside of the main zoo complex but kind of across the road um and we're not a public library but we are completely open to the public um so anybody can actually visit us in in normal times obviously not now we're closed um but i think we're a bit of a a bit of a well, not a secret, not a hidden gem, but I think people don't um, immediately think of a library when they think of London Zoo. But I think that some people also wouldn't realise that we're a charity. 
um, that the library and the kind of historical collections have been there from the beginning and that's the the learned society kind of part of things and I think that people just um, don't always make the connection between the two because they're quite they're quite intellectually different um, in a lot of ways I think. What kind of content do you have available? Is a lot of it scientific or is it to do with sort of the zoo venture, the, the London Zoo or, or what is there? Yeah, so um, within the archive, you know, you've got, you know, I often say that, you know, the Zoological Society of London is sort of like five different organisations all in one. So you've got the kind of the, the learned society aspect of things. So you've got your kind of your... Um, your council minutes and your ledgers those kind of things procedural kind of stuff um, but then obviously you've got the rich history um, of the zoo collections as well um, and those are you know dating back to 1828 when we first opened um, and then you've got um, things that are kind of more related to um, the scientific work that we've done. We have the Institute for Zoology um, and that was founded in the 60s. So we've kind of got this learned society, these zoos um, that people kind of perceive as being visitor attractions. And then we've got the um, Institute of Zoology and then um, the conservation work that we've been doing in the field um, formally since the 1980s. Um, so it's kind of all these different things and most people, I think, only have a perception of the organisation through one of those lenders, but not all of them. Um, so it's quite interesting in that aspect, I think. Who accesses your collection? You say there's a lot of internal members, but I mean, you know, this sounds a bit silly, but tigers and stuff come from all over the world. So you must get a lot of international users too. Yeah, loads. Um, I wouldn't say there's a, there's a particularly typical inquiry. Um, and it's certainly much, much more varied inquiries than in previous institutions I've worked in. Um, so you'll have kind of, um, you do get things like genealogical inquiries or, you know, people who, um, people who have quite a, you know, um, an emotional connection, particularly to London Zoo, I think a lot of people visited there as a child and sometimes they'll have questions about kind of a particular animal they remember from the time or, you know, something like that. I think it, it, it's quite, um, yeah, people have this kind of emotional relationship with, I think. So you get a lot of just general questions from the public about those kind of things. Then you absolutely have lots of um, questions um, internationally as well um, and I'd say that they they can often be on the more academic side of things um, but there isn't again there isn't one type of thing that people are working on it could be somebody who's interested in you know a particular taxonomy it could be somebody who's interested in the history of a particular animal um, or you know a particular relationship we might have had with another country they might be looking into colonial networks imperialism um we get a lot of people who are um interested or are studying architecture because you know we also have a number of kind of listed um buildings on site um there's no kind of one typical inquiry so it's always really interesting um 
and then we get questions from other collections and museums as well because obviously we had lots of animals over our history so it's not unusual to get a question from someone in I don't know you know New Zealand or something saying we've got this stuffed animal was this one of yours um so the, the kind of roots of connection are really um really rich and interesting are you still adding stuff to the collection yeah yeah we still we still collect um so people the most common thing i think that people will send us are things like um old zoo guides um and it's always great to have more of those because they're kind of you know, much like if you get a kind of a, a guide when you go and visit somewhere now, they tend to be on quite kind of flimsy paper. So it's always good to have extra copies of those. Um, yeah, one of the most common things that, send, that people send us. But occasionally, you know, people can kind of come with things that have um, been in their family because maybe somebody worked at the zoo and they want to donate that item to us. Um, so we do still actively collect because I think like a lot of collections, you end up with these kind of gaps because maybe somebody worked there and they took a lot of their papers home. And then after they've kind of passed on, the family kind of go, oh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps perhaps they would be better placed in an archive, I think. Um, so things can kind of come a roundabout way um, back to us. What would you say are the particular challenges you have when managing this archive? Um, I'd say probably capacity more than anything, I suppose. Um, like a lot of charity archivists, I'm a lone worker. Um, so sometimes it's just difficult to, um, you know, there's only one of you. <laughs> so sometimes I think you can... Um, feel frustrated that you're maybe uh, kind of can't um, do things as quickly as if you were working in a team. Um, but I think that, um, I think that generally um, I've got to kind of make, make do with, uh, with what you've got kind of attitude. I think that is, I think that is the main, that is the main challenge. Um, and then as, as well, obviously being, um, being a charity which is something that I don't think again I don't think people perceive us as being mm. um there's not um you know we're reliant on um the money that people come that we get from people coming to spend a day at the zoo um to fund m the vast majority of our activities as a learned society so it, it's very linked to it's very linked to that so we're not kind of um um perhaps as uh well off as some other um, collections um, but then you know a lot of places are in the same boat as well so I think it's just about being rather than kind of um, seeing those things as a disadvantage looking for solutions to try and um, fix those problems. Um, yeah but, if you have a, a good collection to to care for I think that, that yeah. that's a positive thing. Yeah, there's there's never there's never a there's never a dull day, and I would say that you know, the interactions that I have with, um, with members of the public and researchers and answering their questions, you know, it's really, uh, I find it very fulfilling, um, and I think that maybe, you know, when you're kind of a person working by themselves, it's good to emphasise a kind of a, a quality over 
um, quantity kind of approach, I guess, you know, you're never, you're never maybe going to have the kind of, um, you know, vast, very, very shiny sort of storeroom that some other places may have. But, you know, if you're looking after your collection well, and you're helping people find those answers to the questions that they uh, have, then, you know, I think that's, that's the, that's the aim of the job, isn't it? So if you had one thing to hope for the future, what would it be? Would it be more staff to do more legwork or <laughs> for what? Um, I think that uh, I think that that would maybe help us progress in 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 ways. I, I you know I think I'd hope that um, you know finding finding a way of kind of sustainably growing things it's probably my hope for the future i think so you know having extra members of staff is all well and good but then if you don't have some of the other things in place then you kind of yeah you've you've got more you've got more people but you can't necessarily um expand in the way that you'd want to but it would it would give um you know it gives you that uh, capacity to be able to um, to do more just just generally I guess um, you know and I think there's always lots of things that we want to do as a small team and we try and do as many of them um, as we can we try and say yes as much as possible um, but sometimes yeah you are you are limited by having a small number of people um, you know and in some collections for my librarian colleagues there'll be you know somebody who uh you know you'll just have somebody who catalogues journals for example whereas obviously my colleagues are just two people doing all of those all of those kind of things um but i also think it makes you versatile and pragmatic and i think there's probably some days where you think oh I, an extra pair of hands would be amazing because then we could do this and this and we wouldn't have to say no to that other thing but in some ways I wouldn't change it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Quality over quantity. Yeah, and I think that's just that's just what um what we try and what we try and offer to people. Um but I think that, you know, we'd all really like to do um to have the time to use the collections in, you know, more ways. Um you know, we, I think we engage well with people as it is, you know, we benefit from having things like um, uh, an education department within the zoo um, that work with different groups. Um, but it's kind of, we'd love to do more of those kind of things. Um, getting more people in, because as you say, you know, we're a public, we're a public library. Um, and we're always really keen to have people visit um but it's I, i've lost count of the number of times that people will say i didn't know that there was a library but then you know like like i was saying before i think it's this um this kind of uh thing where people know london zoo but then they don't kind of know maybe very well any of the other activities that we do as well um so i think that you're just just more 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 people having a great time with the collections is is my hope for the future um but doing it in a way 
growing that stuff in a way that is meaningful and sustainable is really important as well. Do you team up with other organisations to do projects like a Natural History Museum or anything like that? Um, yeah, in a kind of ad hoc sense, I'd say um, uh, that we do, but nothing, nothing um, in the time that I've been there um, of a kind of larger scale. But you know, some sometimes some really nice pieces can come out of just um, you know a question you might think of. I was looking through some um, uh, death books that we have. So these are kind of ledgers that were kept for um, a period of time um, that record um, the deaths of animals within the collection uh, and kind of what they um, what they died of um, and then perhaps where their remains went. Um, so kind of pathology records. Um, and I noticed, I was looking through um, a volume from the 1920s and noticed that a lot were going to Cardiff Museum. Um, and I just thought, I wonder if they've still got these specimens. I wonder if they're still within the collection. So um, I emailed what is now the National Museum of Wales um, and got chatting with one of the curators there. And we ended up kind of um, writing this blog together about these kind of um, specimens that were, were still in their collection. Um, and it was really fascinating. So uh, there are a lot more kind of things like that that happen with us, I think, um, than kind of larger, larger kind of big, big projects. Lots of lots of little things. What, in your opinion, is your favourite item that you think people should know more about? Um, I always think that the most interesting items in archives are letters um, and I'd, I'd kind of hold that to be true for um, for most places because I think in you know collections of letters can be so um, varied in the people that are um, that are sending them most collections I think only usually have one side of the correspondence um, and they can be um, they can be honest in a way that you're not going to get from you know, meeting minutes. Um, and we have uh, probably our largest collection of letters is one um, of letters that were written to um, uh, one of our secretaries, um, who was called um, Philip Lutley Slater um, from the 19th century. And these are all kinds of people that would write him letters. You know, you've got, uh, you've got kind of members of the public in there. You've got, um, really famous people you would have heard of like Charles Darwin you've got um lots and lots of different scientific luminaries you know Alfred Russell Wallace um and I think you just get a kind of a, a sense of tone and personality from a letter that you wouldn't get from other things um obviously selections of letters that are that are kind of um extant and kept within archives or you know decisions that are made by people um in the past of what is important to keep and what is not which i think is interesting in and of itself as well um with regards to those ones apparently in the 1960s some council members went through um the trunk of letters and decided which ones were important and which ones weren't 
So the ones that I have are those letters and the ones that I don't have or whatever they decided weren't important, um, which I think is fascinating as well. Um, you know, because it's all of these decisions that are taken, um, uh, you know, you can't, um, you can't think of the kind of the archive as a neutral place. Um, as people say, it's, it's something which is constantly having decisions in, imposed on it. Um, and I think you also spend a lot of the time explaining to people why things don't exist, you know, and I think the good thing about letters is often they'll, they'll, they can answer some of the questions that people have that are more, more ephemeral, you know, people, people do want to know what happened, but often they want to know what was it like, if that makes sense, you know, um, what was it like to be there at this time? How did it feel? What did people think, you know, as opposed to just the decisions that were made? Um, and I think sometimes with institutional archives, a lot of the records can be the decisions that were made, but there can be a lacking in the um, the feelings that people had about those decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's the difference between history and historiography. It's the facts versus how you tell them. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that, um, you know, I, I hope from a modern perspective that my outlook has always been that I'm trying to help anybody who has a question, try and get to the bottom of that question um, and attempt to impose as um, that's kind of, you know, I'm not going to be going through a trunk of 60 letters and deciding what I think is important and checking out half of them. That's a, that's not, that's not great appraisal practice. <laughs> um, but I think that um, I spend as much time talking about the gaps in the archive as I do about what's in there, um, which I always think is interesting. What type of gaps do you have that annoy you? that annoy me um there's definitely a lot of people who i think have taken their papers home um there's a lot of that <laughs> um but i've noticed that in other archives that i've worked in as well i think i think people love to um you know and i think particularly when everything was paper-based you can really physically tell when somebody has probably had a desk full of papers and they've either taken it home or they've not kind of deemed it to be important enough to preserve. Um, you know, I, I still do obviously actively try and collect internally. Um, but, you know, people are very focused on the day-to-day -day business of what they do. And often people don't think that what they, what they're producing at the current time, they, they kind of can't, see how anybody would be interested in that because they think it's just kind of oh, it's just what I do so normally I try and um, encourage people by using using things from the archive that are kind of um, related to the work that they're doing show them the old things and then go what you do now is the same <laughs> please <laughs> please be please be the history of the future um, but I think it's because people you know people are busy and um, you know we are a charity so everybody is um, 
working super hard with what they've got to kind of um, do the best job they can. Uh, so I think people don't often kind of have time to sit down and kind of intellectually ponder if their papers will be important. You know, it's kind of, it's very much a thing that people, um, you know, will donate their papers to the British Library or whatever, and that'll be, that's why you're kind of, as one of the reasons why you don't get those kind of day-to-day um, -day things. And that's what people are so interested in, you know. They want to know what was it like to be, you know, you know, a, a, just a kind of a, a standard sort of level keeper in the 1930s. But people wouldn't, people, you can understand why people wouldn't just write down what a normal day of work was like for them, because they would think, why is that interesting to anybody else? And I suppose that's, um, that's what I'm trying to encourage people is interesting now because I can't uh, I can't fix the things which weren't recorded in the past but you know I think that well you've got the absences of that you've just got um you've, you've got more of that um more formal um recording of history I guess your minutes your your whatever your meetings but it's missing I don't know, the humanity of it is not the way, right way to describe it, but the the things that people are actually interested in, people are interested in, they're not just interested in people who were the president of a society, for example, you know, they want to know what it was like for everybody who worked there. Um, and I think, you know, like in many archives, those are, those are gaps that you have, because probably at some point in the past, somebody decided that those kind of things weren't interesting enough to record um, or if they did that they weren't interesting enough to keep. But that's what you're doing in your role nowadays, you're rectifying the mistakes of the past. That <laughs> Makes it sound grander than it is. That's what I try and do because you know it's not it's not my job to um, it's my job to look after these things and try and organize them in a way that um people are going to be able to find what they need more easily but it's not my job to decide whose story is more important than someone else's you know there's no because there's no difference to me if somebody's got you know an inquiry you know as a as a professor in a university to somebody who is just emailing because they want to know the name of a giraffe they really liked in the 1950s. Those two questions are just as valid to me as anything else. So I try as much as possible to be even-handed with those things. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. It's been fascinating hearing about the work you're doing in your tiny team to, to keep a record of the Zoological Society and its, its zoo-keeping um, ventures too. You Thanks for having me. Visit, well, no, you can't visit the library, unfortunately, but you are open to people's sort of borrowing and inquiring. Is that correct? Yeah. So you can, um, if you are into Twitter, um, then you can follow us. Um, our handle is ZSL Library. Um, and uh, what's our, um, 
our zoo is currently closed. I don't know when this will go up, but um, it's it's lockdown take two. Um, so the zoo is currently closed to um, the public, um, but obviously when we uh, reopen, please do come and visit the zoo as well. Um, are there any other plugs? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, but you can you can always um, send us uh, an email, um, library at zsl.org. Um, we've got a really great collection. Um, you can find um, you can find us on the zsl.org website as well. Um, it's kind of got a bit more information um, about the collections that we hold. But we're always very happy to hear from people any questions that they might have. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.